Good afternoon all. Welcome to our first Safety Leadership Series webinar for 2023. Um, you know, when, when we started doing these Safety Leadership Series, it must have been about 10 years ago, we used to put the chairs out in a physical room here in the office and we'd invite people and we'd get about 50 people in the room and we'd be you know, very excited about meeting some of our closest and dearest clients. Today we've got 500 people registered uh, and we're coming to you nationally and it's a really exciting kind of development for us to be able to share this thinking with you in this sort of way. Today we're going to be talking about um, what is a phenomenon we've been perhaps sort of hinting at for the last few years, the real broadening of what occupational health and safety risk really means. Uh, and we're looking at this from the perspective of the regulatory response to this broad idea of the duty of care and what that really means. So we'll talk you through all of that as we, as we travel through. I'm really delighted today to be joined by three of my very clever colleagues uh, across our national footprint. Um, these are our senior lawyers in the team, all uh, senior associates and senior leaders across our uh, work health and safety team. We're Catherine joining me from uh, our brand new spanking offices in, over in Perth. Morning, Catherine. Yep, morning, Steve. Thanks for, thanks for joining. Uh, Graham joining us from our, you know, slightly less new, I think, Graham, but still very nice offices in Sydney. Morning, Steve. And uh, Shay joining us from here with me in Melbourne. G'day, Shay, how are you? Really good, thanks, Steve. Um, so before I, I commence, as is, you know, traditional for us at HSF, consistent with our Reconciliation Action Plan, can I just acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm on? I'm on the lands today traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And as I sit here today and look out in this you know, beautiful vista that we get to share, uh, can I acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of this land and pay respects to their elders, past and present, and also any other Aboriginal elders or members of other communities who might be joining us today. Can I also say as we do, uh, and this is a learning for us, but as, a, as we've done over uh, recent webinars, Today we'll talk about some examples of, of regulatory action, court actions and, and other uh, sort of outcomes. And the base of those is often, you know, on occasion quite traumatic uh, sets of circumstances across the range of physical, psychosocial uh, workplace interaction risks. And so I just give you uh, what I think is traditionally called a trigger warning in relation to all of that, that we will deal with that subject matter. And of course, you should deal with that in whatever way uh, suits you best. So today we're going to talk to you about this idea of the broadening of what is health and safety. So I, as I've been happily telling people, or perhaps less happily, over this year, I think this is 20 years for me, it's 20 years for me here at HSF, and 20 years really doing this area of work, health and safety. When I started this work 20 years ago, when we talked about occupational health and safety, we talked about what I'll call traditional health and safety, construction sites, manufacturing sites, uh, occasionally, uh, loading docks or inter interactions between mobile plant and equipment, physical manifestations of manual risks arising in, in that sort of working environment. But increasingly, over the last five years in particular, the work that we've been doing for clients has such a broad complexion now of what is workplace risk. In addition to not, not you know giving up on or supplanting those physical risks, but broadening into areas of public risk, of customer-facing risk, of product liability, of psychosocial risk, of interactions in the workplace. And so today, we want to give you a flavour of that. Where are we going in terms of health and safety regulation and what are some of the earning signals that we've got? If I take you to slide two, um, we, we 
wanted to hinge this, I suppose, with the currency of the development of the uh, work health and safety strategy, which Safe Work Australia has recently published. Safe Work Australia, the sort of peak uh, regulatory body, not a regulator in its own sense, but a peak body representing all of the regulatory agencies across the model law states. That is now, uh, Catherine, every state and territory, Perth being one of the more recent to join the work health and safety regime. Victoria is still holding out for reasons no one can quite remember anymore. But Safe Work Australia has published a health and safety strategy, which has got some really kind of fascinating things to say. One of the things it says is don't forget the basics, right? The most common causes of workplace injuries remain vehicle incidents, slip trips and falls, being hit by moving objects, people putting their body under what we used to call ergonomic uh, stress. So the core of the human body has not changed and the risks that can arise in workplaces are still resulting in serious injuries. It reports on nearly 200 fatalities on any given year across uh, Australia in relation to people uh, dying at work. Those numbers have been increased over recent years because we now include vehicle incidents uh, on the on the highway, if you like, in a way that we never used to count uh, in these statistics. But still, that's a you know a sobering number uh, on any on any view. But what the strategy also notices is that the nature of work across the Australian economy is changing. When it, used to be predominantly manufacturing, construction, physical uh, industries. There is now a blend and an increasingly tilting blend to care industries, uh, to professional services industries, to non-physical forms of work, to differences in the way in which people are engaged to perform work, to a dilution of the primacy of the employment, employee, employer relationship to other types of employment relationships. And it says in all of that context, it's necessary to kind of review afresh what the health and safety strategy across the regulatory agencies should be. And they say some interesting things. They talk about the complexity of supply chains. They talk about the risks inherent in the hydrogen industry as an example of the way in which the nature of the transportation of goods and services is changing and the way in which the risk profile of some of that is changing. They talk about the increasing reliance on imported goods and materials and the risks that, that carries in terms of that chain of certainty about what those materials contain. It also talks about, if I go to the next slide, AI, which is just always fun to kind of talk about while we are sat here now blissfully uh, in 2023 before the, you know um, AI becomes self-aware and we all regret this year and not taking further action. But it talks about AI as saying that this is something that is gonna change work and because it changes work, it will necessarily change risk. Now AI, there's as much to be you know, joyous about as fearful, I think, in terms of health and safety. But the regulator here is saying, if we look over the horizon, there are things that are coming, there are things that are changing, and they, they list AI as one of them. And I know that they're on the next slide, uh, and this resource will be available for those joining afterwards. There's further work being done even on this topic as we speak. Uh, the New South Wales Centre for OHS has spoken about the potential impacts, I think on slide four, uh, Wayne of AI across industry generally, and what that might mean, and they're, they're asking the question, what might it mean for the human interaction at work, the psychosocial interactions between workers and managers, between those who do process work, those who rely on that process work, and those who oversee it or execute on it, and what will the change in the technological base mean for all of that? Fascinating stuff, right? And I, I suppose we're just using that to set the scene to suggest this, that the traditional task of a health and safety regulator has changed over recent years. And there's examples of the way in which we'll talk through in a second, 
the workplace regulator has been called upon as a regulator of last resort on risk. And this is, I suppose, the theme that we wanted to set out for you today. And the reason we're doing this, we'll come back at the end of the session, but the reason we're doing this is because for those of you on the line in legal functions, in ops functions, in HR functions, or in health and safety functions, the question of what your system, your health and safety system needs to now contemplate and respond to is much broader than it's ever been. And I suppose that's the way in which we wanted to frame up the discussion. So we'll travel to Perth now. Catherine, hi, thanks for joining us again. Um, there's a couple of cases I know you want to talk about in this world of kind of broadening of what it is we've come to expect from, from the health and safety regulator, uh, triggered by, uh, if nothing else, the introduction of those model work health and safety laws. So over to, over to you. Thanks very much, Steve. Yeah, that's right. We've um, finally made it in purse to the model legislation with a few tweaks. Um, the case that I wanted to start with today was a prosecution that WorkSafe um, recently commenced, well, in February of this year, which were the first charges under the new legislation. Um, these were charges against a mining company, FMG, um, in relation to a failure to supply documents um, in relation to 34 cases of alleged sexual harassment at their various mine sites. So WorkSafe WA, it's, it's quite unusual to see a prosecution of this nature um, given it relates to the powers that a regulator has under the legislation. Um, but what has happened here is that um, FMG has refused or failed to provide those documents. So uh, WorkSafe has commenced that prosecution um, under section 171 of the Work Health and Safety Act. So it relates to their powers to request documents or to answer questions in respect of an investigation. Now, many of you on the line are probably very familiar with these requests because um, from our perspective, we're seeing those requests increasing. Um, the regulator does seem to be, at least in WA, um, increasingly undertaking investigations in a whole host of areas. Um, most notably in that sort of sexual harassment, bullying, those, those kinds of areas that are traditionally the kind of HR type issues. So this prosecution is an interesting one because it, it's a little bit out of character to what we've previously seen from WorkSafe WA. And that might be partly to do with the new legislation and, and sort of an action to, um, to, to um, make those boundaries very clear at the outset, but it, it also potentially arises as a result of the um, parliamentary inquiry that occurred, um, which the report was handed down last year in which um, WorkSafe was actually questioned as to why they hadn't previously been investigating issues like sexual, sexual harassment. So um, a whole host of things probably playing into this, but um, those are just some of them. Um, I should note that these um, powers under the Work Health and Safety Act um, are quite commonly used by WorkSafe inspectors. And it's worth noting that these do have criminal sanctions. So in FMG's case, the maximum penalty for each charge was $55,000. So if you take that over the 34 charges that was laid, that's, that's a significant amount of money. It's $1.87 million. So um, it's, it's no small feat um, to not comply with some of these powers 
Um, for those who, who may be in the West or who have followed along, um, a few weeks after this prosecution was commenced, FMG released a statement indicating that they considered WorkSafe's prosecution and had, had resolved to cooperate. So my understanding is that the, the documents requested have now been provided in a redacted form. Um, and from all accounts, from what I can see, the, the prosecution appears to have been discontinued. Um, but nonetheless, it does show um, the, the lengths that WorkSafe will be taking, um, and they're obviously taking their powers in respect of investigation very seriously. Um, if I move on to the next slide, um, that is um, the other matter I wanted to touch on, which is somewhat related. It's um, the first anti-harassment audit that has been completed in South Australia. So Safe Work South Australia um, took on board the various reports, including the parliamentary parliamentary inquiry I mentioned just before, um, noting the various issues arising with um, sexual harassment against women in the FIFO and mining industry. Um, and they decided to take proactive steps to um, ensure these risks were being managed in South Australia. So the campaign that Safe Work South Australia launched was one to audit mines in South Australia to ensure the risks associated with sexual harassment, discrimination and violence were being appropriately managed. Um, the other report, which um, you can see on the slide, that informed this campaign is the workplace culture report that Rio Tinto also issued um, in February of last year. So Safe Work Australia has completed their first audit. The picture you'll see on the slide is the mine site, which um, was part of the audit at Prominent Hill. This is an Oz Minerals mine site and the, that entity as well as some contractors, Burncut and Tease were involved in the particular audit. So what had happened was inspectors from SafeWork South Australia travelled to the site and essentially undertook various interviews with um, short and long-term employees of those various entities, um, really just to question the site's adherence to um, policies associated with psychosocial issues. So accommodation, safety, bullying, sexual harassment, that sort of thing. Um, managers and supervisors were questioned, but so were um, regular employees about training that was provided, what procedures were in place, how complaints were being handled, um, and other any other issues related to the site. Um, of course, we haven't seen the product that has been um, produced as part of the audit, but um, it's worth noting because it's something that, at least in South Australia, is being rolled out across the mining industry. And SafeWork South Australia was very clear to note that um, whilst the audit was in the mining um, industry, it wasn't intended to be limited in that way. It's just that the mining industry has very specific risks that, um, that need to be managed. And of course, psych psychosocial risks and hazards arise in all workplaces. So it's conceivable that these sorts of audits could arise in other industries in the future. Um, the other thing that I was wanting to mention in relation to the audit is, um, of course, another example of an in increased focus by regulators on those um, traditionally HR type issues or um, complaints like the bullying and sexual harassment. Um, so. SafeWork South Australia, WorkSafe WA and other regulators have made it very clear that these constitute risks under the work health and safety law. So we've, we've seen that shift already with changes to the model law. Those were the points that I wanted to discuss on the cases, but um, we'll throw yeah, to- thanks. thanks so much, Catherine. I realise I've been remiss not inviting 
the attendees to put any questions you might have as we travel through this in the chat. So we might be coming back to you, Catherine, if there's any questions that crop up uh, from the attendees. I think you can find the chat button uh, in the uh, small um, uh, little window that pops up on, on uh, GoToWebinar. So no, no questions from the audience. You'll be happy to hear, perhaps, Catherine. But look, really fascinating, right, that, that I, I think we've always known after a serious workplace incident, uh, the regulator can come knocking. I think we used to call our seminars that, right? And, and at that point, of course, uh, you know, there's powers that the incident investigation can be the subject of a, of a, uh, a seizure order. There's powers to ask for safe work method statements and other materials that go historically back, powers to take statements in some, some different contexts. So I think a health and safety professional has always known that this is a sort of a live aspect of what it is to be regulated, you know, under the, under the Australian laws. What's changing here is that, that that idea now is going to draw in the HR team, it's going to draw in the ops team, it's going to draw in those who've got an eye on workplace culture. I mean, isn't this fascinating, right, that the idea of workplace culture is now a regulatable concept under work health and safety laws? And it just sort of means, doesn't it, Catherine, that you know anything is fair game in terms of the documents and the materials that, that an organisation is producing. That's right. And and it's not even um, from what we've seen, the types of documents being requested. It's not as simple as just handing over policies and procedures. There's a, um, a real um, bit of work to do to consider what can and can't be provided. Because as you say, these are not just health and safety issues. There are other things inform it. For example, if it's a sexual harassment matter, a bullying matter, even a discrimination matter, this could have been raised through a whistleblower. So there's those laws that factor into all of this it's not it's definitely not as clear cut no yeah great great call out and that that is um you know a real complexity i think uh, i suppose you, you can't rationally argue that the, the the risk of sexual harassment at work or bullying or aggression or harassment are not things that uh, can give rise to injuries and hence things that should be regulated by uh, in the same way that physical injuries are i think that that if there ever was a debate about that it's passed the mechanics of that we're now seeing you know uh, major organisations being prosecuted for not handing over swathes of document relating to historical compliance. That is new, that is a dramatic development and it could have happened, I think, in any in any jurisdiction. Any final thoughts, Catherine? Uh, we, we might circle back if questions pop through from the audience, but I think we can good. travel. I'm, ha I'm happy to answer any questions. Cool, thanks. So we'll travel to, I know we're not travelling, but it feels exotic if we say this, but let's go and draw in Graham from our Sydney office. Thanks, Catherine. We'll drop back to the team at the end. Graham, you were going to look at a couple of cases for us. One, I know that's been spoken about much, particularly on LinkedIn, um, the, the, the source of all truth, of course, but in relation to the duty of care owed by individuals discharging their role as health and safety professionals. We're going to talk about that, which is Queensland's case, but, but one that's really, I think, of interest in the Sydney office. I don't know we've been some work on. And then another case about something which is really kind of left field in its own way, access to uh, dangerous or um, uh, you know more serious materials in a workplace. So we'd love to hear from you on those couple of cases if we can. Yeah, thanks, Steve. And I think just piggybacking off uh, Catherine's comments, the reason we're looking at these two cases today is they are really unusual. Um, and I think they show a widening of you know, regulatory intent um, indicative of the regulators in both Queensland and New South Wales looking to pursue and prosecute matters which traditionally you know might have gone away 
quietly, might not have resulted in worker prosecutions. Um, and I think it's just really interesting to look at that in the context of these widening you know, remits that our regulators have across the country today. So the first case um, which Steve has foreshadowed is a case where a work health and safety manager in the Museum of Queensland um, was recently prosecuted um, and pleaded guilty to a breach of her duty as a worker to ensure she took reasonable care that her actions um, didn't adversely impact on the health and safety of others in the workplace. Really unusual and interesting factual um, matrix to this one. So they, basically what, what occurred here was back in January 2019, a worker in the taxidermy department at the Queensland Museum contracted Q fever. Um, it's a zoonotic disease passed from basically animals to humans. Um, through bacteria and resulted in this worker suffering from re reasonably significant um, spinal abscess. Now, this was the first, still was the first um, reported case of Q fever in the taxidermy industry in Australia. Um, it does occur from time to time in abattoirs, so it's not entirely unheard of in the Australian context, but there were no recorded cases of this occurring in the taxidermy industry. And the risk of this occurring was you know, seen by, I think, all involved, including the, the regulator here, as very low to remote. Um, so in these circumstances, it's really strange that the WHS manager of all people was, was prosecuted individually for her failure here. So how this arose was you know, back in 2015, some four years before the the worker in the taxidermy department contracted Q fever. The WHS manager had attended a presentation with the regulator on you know, biological diseases and had subsequently exchanged some emails with the regulator around specifically Q fever and controlling that risk um, in the taxidermy department. Now, that resulted in the WHS manager, you know, going away and starting a risk assessment, looking at the controls that could be put in place, engaging with the regulator around that. Now, unfortunately for this individual, she, she never completed that risk assessment and it was never elevated to, to management. And four years later, there's this case of Q fever that develops. And what's unusual here is that the inspectorate and the Queensland prosecutor decided to pursue the individual here effectively for that failure, um, alleging that between 2015 and 2019 she'd breached her duty of care and her obligation as a worker to ensure her actions didn't put others at risk effectively. And she pleaded guilty to it, um, faced a maximum fine of up to $150,000 under the Queensland regime. Now, the result here wasn't anything, you know, within those extreme realms. She um, received a $1,500 recognizance and a 12-month good behaviour bond. But in these circumstances, one might, you know, traditionally and logically think that the failings here around controlling a workplace risk, around ensuring risk assessments are completed, and putting in place controls for what was recognised to be a very low to remote risk would fall on the organisation, fall on Queensland Museum. Now, 
you know, as of today's date, they haven't been convicted of anything in relation to this. Instead, they're negotiating an enforceable undertaking um, with the regulator. So this throws up a whole lot of questions around, you know, equal justice, around <coughs> discharge of primary duties, and questions we just, you know, don't usually see. While worker prosecutions aren't, you know, that they're still rare, they're not unheard of, but certainly still rare. I think this is certainly one of the only ones I've seen where, you know, a work health and safety manager who had no real taxidermy experience um, has been personally held to account under the regime for effectively failing to complete a risk assessment. Um, so really a widening of what we traditionally see the, the regulators look at here. Um, might move on to the, the next case. Yeah. So from sort of one extreme to the other, so you know, one prosecution where traditionally we would have seen the organisation prosecuted, um, to the other extreme where we're in New South Wales this time, um, where in May this year the New South Wales Ambulance Service was convicted of a category three offence. Um, or you know, breaching its obligations under the Act, and fined $187,000 for effectively deficiencies in its auditing process. So this prosecution, why this one is unique and a bit strange, is it related to an ambulance um, or paramedic working for the ambulance service in New South Wales, who was effectively skimming um, fentanyl off the top of vials and replacing it with saline. So, accessing the vials, taking taking what he wanted out of them, filling up the saline, and then effectively sellotaping those vials shut. It's, it's knowing the criminal behaviour that this worker was engaging in, he's obviously addicted to the opioids, um, and that was, was a known risk for the organisation that their paramedics would access controlled substances, and they had various auditing policies and procedures in place to identify risks associated with this. Now, where the organisation fell down a little bit was that whilst they had these processes in place, they weren't followed to the letter and they weren't seen as adequate to identify the, the behaviour um, that was being undertaken by the worker here. So once the investigation you know, into this paramedics conduct really kicked off. Um, there were various reports that came out where other paramedics had concerns about him, had been seen, you know, asleep on his feet during shifts, swerving in the ambulance. None of this had been escalated. He had been the second highest um, fentanyl administrator in the state. Um, and this hadn't been escalated to management, which was required under the procedures. So there were certainly aspects of his behaviour that should have put the ambulance service on alert that, you know, something might not be quite right here with this, this paramedic. And aspects of their policies and procedures that were in place that they didn't strictly follow to, you know, escalate those behaviours or escalate concerns around his conduct. But we're still talking about conduct that was you know, distinctly criminal in nature. He was stealing a controlled substance to fuel his own addiction. And the court effectively found that they failed to take 
they being the New South Wales Ambulance Service had failed to take um, adequate steps to prevent knowingly unlawful conduct, which is just quite a high standard and again, not a prosecution we, we might have seen in, in times gone by. So again, this case just shows a widening of the ambit of what the regulators are looking into. Um, I think that, that's probably the key point I wanted to make on that one. Steve, welcome your, your insights and comments. Yeah, th thanks Graham, and two great summaries of two really quite unusual cases. And the point you make is so central, I think, that we talk about on our, on our side, you know, the prosecutorial discretion. There are lots of breaches of legislation that happen in lots of circumstances. Uh, across a range of laws, including health and safety and others. The question is, well, what, what will the prosecutor direct their energies towards? They're resource limited and, and what are the messages they want to communicate either to a specific individual through specific deterrence or generally across industry, what's the general signal? And here it just strikes me there are two general signals. One, organisations will be expected to take a very, very broad view of risk in their organisation rare zoonotic diseases in the taxidermy department, the risk to a human being resulting from their addictive uh, response to you know, a, 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 a potential to steal materials from the, the, the back of an ambulance. There's, I suppose we'll come to the personal liability point, but at a corporate level, Graham, it just strikes me, this is setting a bar ever higher about the way in which risk has to be contemplated by an organisation. I don't know your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely. I think certainly, you know, in relation to the prosecution of the, the Ambulance Service of New South Wales, this is, you know, it, it wasn't entirely unforeseeable conduct. Um, it was accounted for in their processes and, you know, risk management procedures. But effectively, what, what this message is, you know, sending to me is that as an organisation, as an employer, as a business, you're expected to assess and account for, you know, knowing misconduct, but it goes a step beyond that because we're not even talking misconduct, we're talking knowingly criminal conduct of your workers. And you know, as you allude to there, Steve, I think it is really extending what's the expectation on those employers and, and businesses is around management of those risks. Um, yeah. And, you know, similarly, with the zoonotic um, disease case where it was considered such a remote and unlikely risk and yet an individual has you know, been prosecuted for, for failing to account for that um, and as a result you know transitioned out of her career as a health and safety professional. Yeah look at and I, and I think that's you know the, the key takeaway across both of those that it's a challenge for organisations to know where to put their energy. So we've had a, a question in the chat, someone said, how would a court look at an organisation that has a high portfolio of risks and haven't got to the more remote, but has been focused on the, on the less remote? I think these cases are showing that even across the spectrum of you know, less remote risks uh, compared with those which are sort of really quirky, freak style incidents, um, an organisation has to have some lens across the breadth of all of that, which goes to the question of the adequacy of the health and safety resourcing, goes to the understanding of risk across the across the organisation. But really challenging because you know we we started this session with a discussion of the 
overall national safety strategy, which says the things that have been injuring and killing people haven't changed very much in the last decade, and we should be focused on those with critical focus on fatal and catastrophic risk. And yet, you know, there is this pull back to things that are quirky, freak, uh, you know, foreseeable, sure, but but not uh, uh, frequent or even uh, beyond seldom style incidents in workplaces. And this is, I think, part of the challenge for, for employers. I'm interested in your, your message on the on the prosecution of a health and safety professional, something that often you know, people think they're personally at risk, gets people to sit on the edge of their chair a little. These are not new laws, are they? This is, in essence, the decision to prosecute somebody under existing laws. Is that, is that the way you describe it? Correct. And these laws have been, you know, the worker duty under model laws, um, which, as you know, Steve, is now everyone except your home jurisdiction, um, has been there or over a decade now, WA excluded. Um, what, what is, as you know, what is unusual or unique in this case is the prosecution of a WHS manager who had no particular expertise in taxidermy, had no particular expertise in these biological diseases, and was managing four different sites. Um, it it's still baffles, I think, a lot of us that the that's where the regulator decided to put their focus on this particular case. Um, yeah, as, a rough, as I mentioned, it's not a yeah. Sorry, Graham, I spoke over you right at the end then. Sorry, as you were saying. Oh, I was just saying, it's not, not unheard of for workers to be personally prosecuted um, you know, un under the model laws, but usually it's workers who have been reckless, who have been on the tools, who's conduct has you know, directly and recklessly adversely impacted the, the health and safety of another person. That, that's just not what happened here. Um, this was really a failure to complete the paperwork and elevate it is what the alleged breach was. Yeah, yep, uh, re re remarkable. But as, as I say, there is a, a capacity, a right for prosecutors to choose the things they think are in the public interest and on which they've got a reasonable prospect of success. The prospect of success is not is not challenging. The laws are broadly expressed, so you can bring a lot of cases and have a prospect of of winning them. Um, but is it in the public interest? Is it genuinely in the public interest to uh, pursue those tasked with managing risk across a broad portfolio like a museum uh, for failing to have managed or contributed to the management of a particular risk? That is the that is the question. But the question is answered. Yeah, obviously it was. That's that's the election that they that they made. Look, thanks so much, Graham. We will come back for a final for a final comment. But Shay, I'll bring you in now, if I can, from Melbourne. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, actions that have been taken by our own regulator, as we both sit here in Melbourne, uh, WorkSafe Victoria. I know you and I have been involved in cases down here of a of a quirky nature. Um, that that not not to say that the traditional cases of people getting themselves in harm's way with mobile plants or working at heights unsupported or dealing with uh, ordinary uh, electrical risks or other sort of common workplace hazards. You know, those cases are running, of course. WorkSafe run about 120 of those uh, prosecutions a year and, you know, that's the bulk of them to be sure. But there is still this kind of emerging rump of, of less uh, traditional focused health and safety prosecutions. So do you want to talk us through some of those, Shay, uh, uh, from the Victorian perspective? Yeah. Absolutely, Steve. And I think that's exactly right. And to echo Catherine and Graham's sentiments as well, I think it is just a really interesting time for work health and safety law. And it's 
fascinating as a practitioner in this sort of field to see this dynamic area of law continue to sort of develop and expand across the country, um, and particularly here in Vic, of course. Um, so similarly to the developments in WA and SA that, um, that Catherine discussed, here in Victoria, one of the key areas where we've seen this broadening of safety law happen is in the psychosocial space. Um, we might just go to slide 12 if we can. Thanks, Wayne. Um, now, you might recall that Victoria was going back a year or so at the forefront of implementing specific laws to tackle psychosocial safety. Um, but that progress um, has since stalled somewhat, um, like you sort of said at the start, Steve, for reasons unknown. Um, and a number of other states have um, gotten out in front of us now, including New South Wales, uh, Queensland and Tasmania. Uh, now, that, of course, hasn't stopped WorkSafe from applying the existing laws um, to situations where psychosocial risks such as bullying and harassment have arisen. Um, remembering, of course, that under the Occupational Health and Safety Act, employers must provide and maintain um, a working environment that's safe and without risks um, to health so far as is reasonably practicable. And remembering more importantly, that health in that context is defined as including psychological health. Um, so what we have seen over the past uh, year or so is an increase in prosecutions related to bullying and harassment. And it's interesting to note as well that this trend sort of follows a reported surge um, in the number of mental injury claims. Um, the majority of which are said to relate to work-related harassment and bullying. Um, so you'll see here on the slide, um, I've just summarised some of the recent successful prosecutions relating to bullying and harassment. I won't explore the facts of those cases in any detail now, except to really say that they all involved some form of bullying and that the failings alleged to have occurred in each case actually included relatively easy to implement measures um, so, so, for example, in all of the cases, the alleged failing was that the offenders fail to have in place any adequate policies, um, processes or procedures to address bullying um, and or no way for those employees to raise concerns regarding the risks um, to health and safety caused by that behaviour. So even if there were policies, there was no reporting mechanisms in place for them to raise those issues. Um, we might move to the next slide, please, Wayne. Uh, now, these aren't isolated cases um, either, and WorkSafe are continuing to charge other entities for these types of risks, um, including also sexual harassment. Um, you'll see there that a boss um, has been charged after alleged harassment of young workers in a hospital uh, cafe setting. Um, and it's important to remember that this is in the criminal jurisdiction with criminal sanctions. These are no longer just traditional um, HR issues as they once were. Um, so WorkSafe have indicated as well in their corporate plan for the year that they will focus on these types of issues um, and particularly on the prevention of um, mental health injuries. Uh, it's also worth noting that the proposed psychological health regulations here in VIC are still being considered. Um, and if passed as well, they'll see the introductions of new duties relating to psychological health, which will require businesses to sort of proactively manage and mitigate psychological hazards. So no doubt, in addition to the types of cases we're seeing currently under existing laws, um, we'll also start to see prosecutions relating to breaches of the new duties. But I think the key takeaway here is that for now the laws here in Victoria haven't been changed to respond to these types of psychosocial risks 
um, the prosecutions we've seen to date have been led under the existing laws, which are just being mobilized in response to these types of risks in a way that they were probably always intended to, but um, perhaps not often relied on. So there is a broadening in that sense um, of the perceived boundaries and a clear signal, I think, from the regulator that employers have a legal obligation to make sure um, that their workplaces are psychologically safe in the same way that they should be safe from, from physical risks. Um, and this isn't limited to just Victoria either. So there have been similar prosecutions under pre-existing laws um, right across Australia, including um, in South Australia and New South Wales as well. Um, before I move on to the next sort of topic, uh, Steve, I might just pause there and see if you've got anything um, that you'd like to, to add to that. Oh, no, thank, thanks, Shay. I um, said no, but I still have something to add. That's a, that's a verbal tick. Uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for raising that. A couple of points, I suppose, for our national clients thinking through this weird sort of pause that we have with the Victorian psychosocial regulations. I suppose your point is the headline one. There's no point waiting. Uh, the, the work that a national organisation will do to comply with the model amendments to the model regulations in now every nearly every state and territory will put you in very good stead for compliance with both the existing law in Victoria right now, as you're seeing right here, directors, uh, organisations being subject to investigation and, as you rightly say, criminal prosecution. When you and I act for clients, we sit in amongst the hubbub of the county court or the, the magistrate's court here uh, with a, a jury trial dealing with you know any range of criminal offences of which health and safety slots squarely in. What's re remarkable about, I suppose, or noteworthy about the uh, advance notice that WorkSafe's given of this prosecution that commenced but not concluded, it's worth noting, is that a sexual harassment, pure, it seems, sexual harassment style uh, hazard and risk is now being prosecuted under occupational health and safety laws. That's not remarkable. Uh, nothing will tell you today is remarkable if you're just looking at the black letter of the legislation. But what is the change event is the prosecutorial decision making. These matters are being run to court for specific deterrence, sure, to teach the individuals a lesson. But the general point, I think, is the, the, the point we're conveying here, the general deterrence across the industry. So thanks for sharing that and for drawing out WorkSafe's strategy too. I think there's good signals there. But there is again no, no point waiting, notwithstanding that those laws are in this kind of no man's land of consultation. Uh, it's still worth moving ahead with the, the sort of risk assessment you're talking about. So thanks, Shay. No, that's What's next? Great. What's next? Uh, so moving on to something quite different. We might go to slide 14. Thanks, Wayne. Um, another way we've uh, been seeing safety law respond in recent times is in relation to product uh, safety. Now, when we talk about product safety in the context of work health and safety law, we refer to the measures and regulations in place to ensure that you know, products that are used in the workplace aren't posing a risk to the health and safety of workers or others. Um, and so in that sense, work health and safety law focuses on preventing sort of harm and injury that might arise from the use um, of certain products in the workplace. And so while the specific juris, uh, regulations can vary between jurisdictions, um, to date this has typically included um, common hazards in the workplace, things like machinery and equipment, PPE, electrical installations, um, and that type of thing. 
But work safety law is designed to be responsive to new product safety risks that emerge in the workplace. So when new risks are identified, um, OHS law typically responds through uh, regulatory updates. And that's exactly what we've seen here in Victoria. So Victoria has uh, led the way um, in relation to risks associated with crystalline silica. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the news about this, so I'm sure most of you uh, online are familiar with the risk to some degree, but uh, for, for those who aren't aware, crystalline silica, which can be found in products like um, engineered stone, quite commonly uh, new sort of kitchen bench tops that are installed in houses, um, that they can create a hazardous dust when they're being cut, which when inhaled uh, can cause sort of deadly lung and respiratory diseases like silicosis. Um, so as those products that contain silica like engineered stone have become more popular, um, this has sort of led to an increase in the rise of, uh, of cases and incidents of, of silicosis in Australia. Uh, so in response to this, um, as I said, uh, Victoria's introduced some new safety regulations to protect workers. Um, those laws define what high risk uh, crystalline silica work is and mandate controls, uh, risk assessment and training for workers. Um, and go, I think interestingly, even further by requiring employers to actually provide information to prospective employees, that's job applicants, about the health risks associated with exposure to crystalline silica dust. Um, and Victoria's also uh, introduced a licensing scheme for employers who undertake uh, you know, engineered stone work that generates um, silica dust. So this, uh, I think, pioneering action uh, to regulate uh, this type of work is likely to be extended nationally. Um, and at some stage, there might be a complete ban on the use of engineered stone that's currently being considered. Um, so we're likely to see more development in the space in particular. Um, but this is, again, just another example where we're seeing workplace safety law as opposed to other laws being utilised to respond to, to new emerging risks. Um, and that's, that's not all. Uh, in addition to new and emerging risks, and we might move to slide 15, please, Wayne. Um, it's important to remember as well that safety law continues to respond to known public safety risks. Um, so these are risks that are sort of well, well known um, and you know exist in sort of today, today's world and have for a long time. Um, and two recent cases here in Victoria have, have really highlighted that. So first, there was a prosecution of a heavy vehicle mechanic uh, who failed to inspect or test the, the coupling that connected a fuel tanker's um, prime mover unit and the trailer. And as it happened, that coupling was excessively worn um, and likely to fail under load. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened just days after the truck left the mechanic. Um, and the truck was traveling at speed on a highway, the coupling failed, the trailer detached, and really tragically, three people lost their lives. Um, in another incident this year, WorkSafe charged a taxi company who had failed to train um, taxi drivers in line with the manufacturer's instructions for wheelchair tie-down systems. Um, tragically, again, two people, members of the public, uh, customers of the taxi company, 
um, lost their lives as a result of two separate incidents that occurred because their wheelchairs were not tied down properly by, by the taxi drivers. So I think here again, um, what these cases demonstrate is that there is a broadening of the way the duties have been conceived because even though occupational health and safety laws are primarily designed to protect workers from workplace hazards, um, these, these types of prosecutions that traverse things like transport safety um, demonstrate that you know, these laws are indirectly also contributing to safeguarding public safety as well, um, which I think is really fascinating. And that's, uh, might... again, uh, a, a real stretch, I think, in terms of the way people conceive of health and safety. Well, both of these cases are awful in their own way and, you know, to, to speak to, you know, very tragic outcomes. But that sort of upstream duty holder of a maintenance provider and them being held to account under safety laws, again, this is not to suggest the laws but amended or is new, but the, the gaze uh, of, of blame and fault is, is certainly much broader. And the prosecution of... of an organisation for how it treats its customers and the risks it creates in relation to those is is a is a really new development. Uh, and again, not, without judgment as to its correctness or otherwise, but you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen a prosecution for uh, a mental health provider for failing to prevent the fatality of one of their patients under their care. So, a health and safety prosecution for that. This is not a, a clinical matter or a, a matter for the, the medical regulator, but a, an ordinary workplace. Uh, prosecution. We've seen other public safety style uh, prosecutions. Prosecution of an aged care facility, which is ultimately went, went on appeal to the Supreme Court to be overturned, but was convicted of failing to manage the safety of one of their aged care residents who was leaving the aged care facility outside of the boundary now of control for not having prevented them from leaving in circumstances when they went and found themselves and put themselves in harm's way. Again, health and safety law here being used as kind of the instrument of last resort where, where there's no clear other regulatory environment or no clear regulator who's willing to take action. You know, we're seeing WorkSafe here in Victoria, but, but there's plenty of examples nationally stepping in. Um, the, ch the challenge that puts on is well, what does that mean for a risk management system? How broad do we have to think and, and plan with the answers to the space itself? But there's a media element to this too, I think, that the, 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 the attention the regulator follows fairly, you know, the attention of society is a, a high profile case, which I think you'll talk to next, Shay. Yeah, and and I suppose just, just to uh, touch on that briefly, Steve, as well, what's I think interesting about those uh, these particular cases as well is that there are other regulators that work in this space as well. There's a commercial passenger vehicle regulator. Uh, there's obviously the yep. heavy vehicle national regulator. So it's interesting to see WorkSafe clearly taking these types of issues um, into its sort of remit as as I'm sure other regulators are doing across the country as well. Um, and so on a similar sort of theme, we might move to the next slide, please, Wayne. Um, the last thing I really wanted to touch on, um, and a lot of you will have seen this in the news um, recently again, um, that more recreational style incidents are also being uh, prosecuted. So for example, things like uh, WorkSafe's investigation into the AFL's handling of concussions and you know, return to play protocols. Now the cases on this slide here are really more of a reminder of how broad the scope of workplace safety law can be. Um, and this extends beyond the realm of typical, you know, physical hazards that we've traditionally imagined, you know, things, you know, hazards relating to machinery, equipment and manual handling. 
um, we're now sort of moving past that to the types of you know biological hazards uh, that Graham sort of talked about um, and the psychosocial risks I just spoke about earlier um, to unique risks that are arising um, or that arise depending on the nature of the particular industry such as uh, working with horses in this case. Um, so the cases I've included here in the slide relate to an incident where two separate companies, a horse training company and a race course operator, uh, were charged in relation to the death of an apprentice jockey. Um, this incident unfolded at a Melbourne race course which had a number of training facilities for horses and jockeys, uh, one of which was a sandy bush trail surrounded by um, dense shrubs and trees, which was said to be particularly good for the, the fitness levels of horses that ran on it. Now, given this particular race course was still reasonably proximate to the city and uh, next door to a botanical garden, it was also somewhat uh, of an oasis for wildlife, including kangaroos, wallabies, um, rabbits and so on, which could of course spook the horses if they happened onto the trail. Uh, there was no lighting on the track, which meant that when it was being used by riders in dark conditions, uh, they wouldn't be able to see wildlife on the sandy bush trail until they had ridden over it or were very close to it. Whereas the horses, on the other hand, um, you know, have, have better nighttime vision than humans. So in the dark, a horse could perceive an animal in the vicinity of the trail before its rider could detect the animal. Um, and that, that ultimately meant that the horse could react before the rider was able to. Uh, now, the co consequences for the safety of a rider in, in these circumstances where they're riding at pace and then coming to a sudden abrupt stop uh, are probably obvious to most of us. But regardless, on the day of the incident, uh, two young jockeys were asked to ride their horses around that particular trail in the early hours of the morning while it was still very dark. And during that ride, something spooked the horses and they stopped suddenly and both riders were thrown to the ground. Um, and sadly, one of those riders uh, was fatally injured. So WorkSafe charged both the horse training company that employed the riders and the, the race course operator and it was alleged that they had failed to manage the obvious and entirely avoidable risks of jockeys being thrown for their horses from their horses uh, while riding in the dark, um, a risk they say could have been managed, uh, frankly, quite simply by either not directing the riders to ride in the dark uh, or installing adequate lighting around the trail. Um, so again, I wanted to mention this case because I think it serves as a useful reminder of the already expansive nature of workplace safety law um, and highlights that even where unique risks arise, depending on the specific industry or work environment, uh, work health and safety law still responds. Um, so, so that's all from me really, uh, and I'll hand back over to you, Steve. Brilliant, Shay, thank you for sharing all of that and for the thought putting into picking those examples for us. You know, and here, an example of, I think the point we're making today, which is that what is considered foreseeable and what is a workplace risk or a risk that can be regulated under workplace law, it's a big idea. Um, that foreseeability, of course, always measured in hindsight because one of these things has happened. And so the, you know, the, the, the benefit, I suppose, of prosecuting somebody for failing to have thought it through is the evidence that it's actually happened. Um, but a, a really broad idea of what, uh, an organisation should be reflecting on what should be in its risk registers. And here, you know, an even uh, compounding factor here that not only was the 
organisation who employed this jockey who, who lost her life and the other who was injured held to account. So too was the, let's call them again, an upstream duty holder, someone who it was said ought to have known that the lighting was inadequate. Look, that, thanks. And I'll invite the team to all rejoin us for, for the last couple of minutes if I, if I can. Um, if we go to the last slide, Wayne, I, I suppose I wanted to leave everyone with my, my sense of our take-home point for today. Nothing we've told you today should be taken as you know criticism or concern that health and safety law is being used in this way. It is risk-based legislation, and so it's responsive to risk in a very broad way and a very broad idea. What we're highlighting for you, I think, is that there is a now perhaps an expectation, a pressure, a requirement that the regulators empowered under those laws use those powers to their fullest extent and in uh, much broader circumstances than I think they ever have before. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean for those joining today as an employer? Well, I think it means we've got to think about risk you know, really expansively and think about the duty of care in the most expansive way. As Catherine told us, think about the fact that you might be compelled to produce documents that show how you've responded to these non-physical risks and what that might look like. There's a personal and a corporate overlay and, and, and Graham spoke about the personal accountability. And the community, you know, response and demand and uh, sometimes, uh, you know, cry for a regulatory intervention can be an early indicator of the way in which the regulator is going. And, you know, the, the, the media and the attention that's been drawn on a range of issues, silicosis, the loss of a worker uh, doing jockeying activities, et cetera, has been a harbinger of regulatory activity. So team, thanks for sharing your passion and energy today. It's been so lovely to spend the time with you. I, I don't wonder if you've got a final thought for the for the attendees. Catherine, anything from Perth? Well, I think um, what a lot of these cases have illustrated and particularly given the psychosocial risks, um, it's not the case anymore that health and safety professionals, not that they need to have the skills of all these other areas, but just that there's an increasing requirement for cooperation and communication as between teams. So the HR team now needs to be quite closely speaking with the safety team with a lot of these sexual harassment or bullying type claims because it's conceivable that um, those complaints might make their way to the regulator. Yeah, br brilliant point and well made. Uh, Graham? Yeah, look, I think the cases we've really all spoken about today have been a bit unusual in terms of their factual matrices, which is why we're talking about them, they're interesting. Um, but I guess the, the headline point is the duties that we've discussed haven't really fundamentally changed. What we're really seeing is a broadening of that regulatory intent and the appetite, I guess, to pursue these more unusual, unique matters. So I think that's really just for everyone to reflect on you know, the remote risks in our organisations and how we are addressing those and our individual duties as well, because there, there can be circumstances where we're seeing an increased appetite um, from the inspectors and regulators to, to go after those sort of matters. Yep. Good morning, Graham. And, and the, the miserable events, right? Being involved in a health and safety prosecution is a two to three to four year journey uh, to work through the legal process, to be found guilty or to resolve that you are guilty. And they're all to be avoided, not, notwithstanding, let alone, you know, the, the personal impact that any particular incident might have had. Um, so it's a great call out. Shay, any final thoughts for the team? I knew that mute button was going to get me at the end. Um, but I think just following on from what Graham um, said, 
uh, I think the really important thing for businesses to be mindful of is that they are continuing to assess and respond to risks and not waiting for um, you know, changes to the legislation to signal to them that you know, there's going to be potential action in a particular area of field or you know, scope of law. I think the best case, um, the best thing to do is to assume that you know, the laws will respond to, to unique risks and to um, different types of hazards as they emerge. So um, just being mindful and active in that space, I think is the most important thing to, to take away. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Catherine, Graham and Shay for sharing your time and your efforts. Uh, it's been great to share those insights with such a broad audience. We'll have a second safety leadership series, uh, which we will publicise in the, in the coming months or so. We'll focus on this question of psychosocial safety and what that really means and some lessons that we're learning along with our clients over the, the last 12 months or so. And we will build in our third session to the question, well, how do you wrap all this together? If we're telling you that there is a broader idea under health and safety regulation, and we've also told you in years gone by, there is a duty on leaders to ensure compliance with health and safety law, how do we marry those two ideas together? And so we'll talk about reporting uh, and executive expectations at the back end of the year. But for now, thank you all for joining. Uh, we look forward to seeing you at the next sessions.